Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Friday, April 26, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Avengers Endgame and specifically where this leaves off all the characters for the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's going to be a lot of speculation, but this is going to be a spoiler episode. So if you have not seen the movie, turn off this podcast and listen to it after you have seen the movie. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. Joining me at this podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? So I'm glad we were able to get together today because I know Ben is about to go on a, an international trip. And uh, we wanted to get you on to talk about Endgame. Uh, I guess, very briefly, uh, tell me how much you love this movie. Uh, I love this movie a lot. <laughs> Jacob, do you love this movie? I had a vivid emotional reaction matched only by Game of Thrones and the Harry Potter books. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think I cried. The second time I saw it, I like I was taking notes, and I actually like took notes of... I was trying to track back how many times I cried during my first feeling of this movie. <laughs> I think it was six times that I cried. Uh, Peter, I have to admit that when I first saw your reaction of, <laughs> that you that you cried multiple times... I sort of internally like rolled my eyes a little bit like oh people on right, Twitter were he, making fun of me hardcore and then I like, mean I, I didn't feel the need to make fun of you to your face I just thought about it and and I was like all right P- Peter's a bigger Marvel fanboy than I am so there's no way that I'm gonna cry that many times in this movie and I pr- I lost count of how many times it was probably around the same as you though and so I was like son of a bitch this movie got me like the, all of the emotional <laughs> moments worked so so well i'm i'm so shocked this, that this movie was so satisfying and i think one of the most surprising things about the emotional nature of this film is sure there's there's moments where you know someone dies and you're sad about that or you're you're there's emotional reunions that you're happy about that but i think this might be the first time ever in a movie for me and I got to really think about this. I'm not sure if this is true, but as far as I can think of, that there was a moment so epic and so grand that I literally like started crying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like uh, the event, uh, when he says Avengers assemble and all the mm-hmm. portals open, I was just like, 
crying out of happiness of like just how amazing this moment is. So yeah, that moment got a um. I didn't cry at that moment, but there was a grown man next to me who was fist pumping the entire movie. But when that moment happened, I could hear him sobbing out loud. And there was a, and there was a little kid in front of me who who was like, like his mom couldn't try to shush him, but I like he couldn't like scream like yeah, like it was, so it was just like this amazing reactions all around me. And uh, I guess the biggest spoiler alert: the final shot of um, Steve Rogers and Peggy Carter dancing in their home in the past. Um, my wife like made sure she <laughs> we didn't stand up from our seats until she had dried her tears so no one else would see her crying it was just there was a lot of emotions in that theater and, and the I thing guess, is oh go ahead uh, the most amazing thing about this movie is that even though the mcu has had you know ups and downs i mean good movies and bad movies this one makes the entire experience makes 11 years worth of movies all the lows and the highs all feel worth it even thor the dark world feels worth it now <laughs> It does. I actually want to go back and revisit that movie after seeing, which is kind of cra- crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, let's jump into this. Let's get into our topic because we're probably going to have a bunch of spoiler discussions of Avengers Endgame. But uh, today I wanted to gather to talk about the characters of this movie, uh, you know, w- talk about where this leaves them. But maybe even as a backdoor way of us talking about the arcs as a whole. And I think... We have to start that discussion with the man himself, Tony Stark, who started it all with Iron Man um, and uh, meets his ultimate fate here, right? Yeah. And one thing I want to point out uh, about this is uh, Slash Film contributor uh, Sid Hunt Adlaka has been doing this amazing series for us called Road to Endgame, where he's been analyzing all films in the series in very in-depth ways reading up on you know religion and military funding and all this stuff one thing you pointed out that really blew my mind wide open is that when people compare tony stark to, to stephen strange dr strange they always say oh they're both arrogant smart guys who really what they do but what he pointed out to me and i think this is completes tony's arc is that dr strange is a learner he learns things he incorporates it into his life and then he and he is always feeding himself more knowledge and he's arrogant, but it's a part of a quest for knowledge. Whereas Tony Stark is the smartest man in the world and his arrogance is about his self-confidence, what he can already do. So whereas Dr. Strange's journey is a, pro- a process of learning, Tony's journey has been a process of making mistakes and trying to fix those mistakes and making more mistakes. So Tony's arc, you know, is from a guy who makes his biggest, makes a big mistake of selling weapons and making Ultron and then starting the civil war and he's always trying to do the right thing, but his inability to learn and his inability to sacrifice uh, and look at himself in perspective is entirely about, you know, it leads to him failing constantly. So the final moment where Doctor Strange, who's like him, his mirror opposite, says, like makes it clear to him, you need to die in order to save the universe. Tony Stark finally learns what Doctor Strange has always known, even though they seem so similar. That That is a good reading. And we should talk about, you know, Iron Man uh, in the original Avengers. He saw, you know, what was out there in space. He saw, you know, this alien invasion on Earth that gave him some PTSD and led to him creating Ultron or what happened with Ultron. And Tony talks about that in this movie, like, you know, him his visions. He had these visions of what was coming with Thanos and he tr- wanted... You know, you know, he did it the wrong way, as you said, 
but his idea was to create this uh, security system around Earth that would protect them from any dangers from afar. Uh, I think probably, for me, one of the most interesting moments in this film with Tony is him... Well, he, he comes face-to-face with Howard Stark, his father. And in that moment, I think he realizes that he's been trying to be like his father and he doesn't want to be. Is that is that a good reading of it? Yeah, I think it's a combination of that and him realizing that his father, this titanic figure in his life, who he's always tried to live up to and he always imagined is sneering down at him, was just another guy with a job with the same fears he has. And that, you know, it's a combination of both those things of realizing that his father was as fundamentally flawed as he was. And he's his father's son for better and worse. Yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it is like it, yeah. it humanized Howard in a way that Tony has never seen before, like being on his level like that, talking with him as if he's a colleague instead of, you know, under the the shadow of his legacy as he was as a child, you know, in that dynamic um, allowed him to see his dad's uh, uncertainties and fears. And and I, I think it gave him the freedom to be a person. It gave Tony the freedom to be a person instead of trying to be a figure himself, you know, trying to live up to his dad's legacy. For sure. And and there's also this movie, uh, th- this moment in this movie. Obviously, they have given Tony a daughter named uh, Morgan H. Stark. And uh he has a family life. He's one of the lucky ones, as uh, Pepper Potts says in the movie. And at one point, he, he you know, it just like a, a couple minutes, he figures out time travel, which is a little <laughs> bit ridiculous, but whatever. Uh, he figures out time travel, and he goes to propose the idea to Pepper Potts, and he's there in that moment, hoping that she is going to talk him out of it. And it's such a tragic moment uh, if you you see this film multiple times. Yeah, I I agree. And it's, man, seeing Tony with a kid and seeing like that he's actually a good father despite his fears and seeing happy with Pepper, all the things that he's wanted for his entire life being born out of tragedy. I mean, there's a few movies in this series where where it can be argued that Robert Downey Jr. is on autopilot. But there's a reason. But this entire series is successful because people fell in love with this character and the way he portrayed him. And, and Rob Dungeon is aware of that. And in these scenes, you know, he's reminding us that he's not just Iron Man. He's an incredible. Yeah. Um, okay. So Tony, Tony dies. Um, but this is the Marvel cinematic universe. This is a, you know, a comic book property. People have died before and been brought back. What is the chances that we see Tony ever again? I hope zero. Right, Ben? I think so, too. I mean, I I think that would be uh, really damaging to this movie's legacy. Like, looking back on... It it would just undercut the emotional power of this film. And, uh, you know, Marvel has had their issues with deaths before, uh, both in, of course, both in the comics and in the movies thus far. But uh, a lot of those have been sort of temporary fake-outs. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, of Samuel L. Jackson in Captain America the Winter Soldier, for example. But, like, these those movies didn't necessarily 
they never brought Coulson back in the movies. And I think that's illustrative of what we're talking about here, right? Because yeah. if that happened, that would undercut the power of 2012's The Avengers. And they, Kevin Feige is smart enough to know not to make that mistake. I think he committed. I think he laid down the, <laughs> I was about to say laid down the gauntlet. He, <laughs> he uh, I think he, he committed to a decision here and decided that this is the end for Tony Stark. Um, and maybe you could do something in a prequel or of course, like any of the Disney Plus stuff, you know, anything thing um that takes place before the event here but i feel like this is like the hard out for tony's storyline see that's what i was going to suggest i was going to say that i don't think we're going to see tony stark being uh, ever being brought back from the dead but i think we might see holograms of him like messages he has left i th- uh, you know those like 3d like holograms that we mm-hmm. saw like at the end of the movie i think maybe we could see uh robert Downey jr uh, his voice as Tony Stark playing like an AI kind of like Jarvis or something like that. Like, I feel like there, there might be some kind of like role for him there, but without him being alive, there was, there's a character in modern Marvel comics named uh Riri Williams. And uh, a couple years ago in, in the comics, Tony Stark died. And Riri is this genius kid as black teenager who builds a Iron Man suit in her garage. And, um, she gets access to an AI that's programmed by Tony Stark's mind. So her Jarvis in her suit is Tony Stark as an AI. And naturally, Tony Stark comes back late, a few years later, you know, as a um, as, as as a clone of a younger clone <laughs> of himself with his, with his memories all intact. Long story. But if they ever wanted to, like, you know, tell Riri Williams a story, you know, which is sort of Spider-Man-esque, Spider-Man meets, um, uh, uh, meets Iron Man. They could, they could easily have Robert Downey Jr. being, you know, the holographic AI mentor to her and actually draw that from the comics. I just hope it never gets as convoluted as the comics. <laughs> we should talk about uh, there was someone at Tony's funeral at the end of the movie, which, by the way, I guess was shot during the weekend. They did that Vanity Fair Marvel 10 years uh, photo shoot. I so, was thinking that when I was yeah. watching it because I was like, this is the perfect opportunity because everybody is here. <laughs> yeah, no, that was not a camera trickery of any kind as far as I know. All those people were actually there, and they actually shot it from what I understand um, as a funeral and as a wedding. So uh, that was one of those deceptive moves by the Russos to protect the secrets um, and uh, not spoil Endgame. But um, – there was one person at this funeral that the first time around, I was like, who is that kid? So, uh, Ben, who is that kid? That kid is Ty Simpkins, who is the the young boy in uh, Iron Man 3, if you remember. I think his name is Harley in that film. And um, he's the kid that, like, when Tony crash lands in Tennessee in Iron Man 3, um, he's like a sort of a young inventor himself. His name is, his character's name is Harley Keener. And, um, he sort of helps Tony overcome some of his panic attack moments caused by that PTSD in in the battle of New York. Um, and because of the five year time jump and the fact that that kid was, and and Iron Man three came out when (laughs) in 2013, I think. And, and yeah, cause it was like the first movie right after the, the original event Avengers. So that was, you know, six years ago and you've got a a five year time gap in there, but just the, the six year aging of Ty Simpkins as an actor. I mean, I remembered him as like that kid and he looked very similar in Jurassic world, which was two years later as like a floppy haired little kid, but he's grown up so much. He's had such a, a drastic, uh, a growth spurt that it, it, he just looked unrecognizable to me, but yeah, that's him. But it, it, it totally makes sense that he would be there. 
Um, I know when they first announced they were doing a Spider-Man movie in the MCU, I, I theorized that they should have made him Spider-Man, which um, could have been interesting. I, I guess they went the same way, but with like a little bit older and Tom Holland, who is probably a better actor. Um, but uh, do, do we expect to like, could he take on the Iron Man persona, Jacob? I don't think so. I, I think they're done with Iron Man for a bit. I mean, I think they, they reach a point with Iron Man's suit and with technology and what he's capable of being on screen that I think we're all just ready for different types of heroes. You look at the yeah. new generation coming of Captain Marvel, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, and their powers are so different than the first generation Avengers. I think we just, we're all ready to move on and see different kinds of heroes doing different kinds of things. Okay, let's talk about Captain America, Steve Rogers, who in this movie doesn't die, but I guess his story is, comes to an end. Yeah, I, he he retires. He steps away from superhero life, goes back in time, and gets gets that last dance we were promised in First Avenger, and everybody cries. By the way, I love how everybody was theorizing that he was going to die and Tony was going to live, and it, it was the complete opposite. But um, <laughs> so uh, Steve Rogers in this movie kind of uh, he he gets uh, to actually live his life with Peggy Carter. He gets to go back in time. And uh, experience that uh, married life, I guess, um, outside of the, the superhero world. Like, so w- what is he doing there, Jacob? Is he just like inside the house and not leaving the house and just like <laughs> uh, nobody knows he exists and not fighting any crime, even though he knows there's, you know, big things happening outside those walls? I like to imagine that Captain America spends most of the rest of his life uh, living in, living in domestic bliss. And occasionally, every couple of years, gets called out retirement for a big mission, which we'll get to see in various Disney Plus specials. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I do. I, I like the idea of um, after a life of selfless service, Captain America, Steve Rogers, uh, gets to settle down, whereas Tony Stark has to make the ultimate sacrifice and learn his final lesson. Whereas Captain America gets rewarded for his for always doing the right thing, and you know, nice guys finish last uh, in his case, but he did finish. Yeah, it's sort of about him and Tony Stark being able to rest. I think Pepper Potts says as Tony is dying, you know, you can rest now. And for Steve, it's like he's like you just said, Jacob, he, he spent his whole life in service and he's able to finally you know, take a break for once as well. OK, we have to talk about the future. You mentioned Disney Plus. We know there is a Falcon and Winter Soldier series coming to Disney Plus, And we'll talk about that later. But I'm wondering is there a role for Steve Rogers in that? Like, I know there were there were rumors that Disney was trying to sign um, Chris Evans to a contract to direct episodes of that series, and uh, c- could he possibly appear as the guy that's like, uh, you know, overseeing the missions of Falcon and Winter Soldier? Uh, that would be close to the comics. Uh, I guess maybe a decade ago, uh, Steve Rogers became an old man due to losing his uh, powers, long comic books, of course. And, um, and you know, he could no longer fight and be in battle. You know, he would be on the shield helicarriers and he would be strategizing from a distance and calling the shots for the Avengers, even though he wasn't fighting himself. So I can imagine him being like, maybe not in every episode, but maybe the guy who like gives the old man who gives Falcon and Winter Soldier their missions and could go on from there. I mean, it would be a good use of Chris Evans. It keeps, keeps him in the universe. And I think everybody will be happy to see old man see Rogers for a bit. Should we address the time travel of this movie in this podcast, or is that uh, going to 
get to you wrote an entire today. arc about this peter and it goes into great detail <laughs> and i think we should save that for its own podcast because that's okay. a whole other thing we will but I, I will say here that i think steve rogers is the only thing that breaks the time travel of this movie the time travel logic but we we have also come up with a reason that it doesn't but uh look for that on <laughs> monday um l- okay let's move on to the hulk bruce banner uh he has uh had a huge arc over these films i mean obviously he started as ed norton and and then uh you know they swapped the actors as they did with roadie and um he has been grappling with uh should you know with trying not to break out into the hulk and now in this film he has accepted the fact and the two are one as smart hulk yeah, I love this. I think back to his, his the best line from the original Aven- uh, The Avengers, which was you know him turning around saying, "That's my secret, Captain. Uh, I'm always angry." And the idea that um, it's been leading to this. It's been leading to the fact that um, if he's always angry, it means the Hulk is always there and he's never going to be separate from him. So him making peace with both halves of himself and ending and ending this movie, you know, still as a hulked out scientist and being able to make make the best of both worlds is a route that this character gives him closure. I don't know if we'll see more Hulk in future movies or if we'll see much at all uh, because I don't know where else, what else you can do with him. But seeing Bruce Banner stable and happy uh, and like living a life where he's taking selfies with people who are Hulk fans is <laughs> was really satisfying. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too when I was watching it. Like I'm not sure dramatically what else there is to do with the Bruce Banner character because it seems like all of his issues have been resolved. That's like the big thing with Hulk is that that divide that duality that he's constantly battling with inside but once you resolve that once you you come to the conclusion that uh it's better to have both in your life i'm not sure i mean you can't go back from there right because that doesn't make any sense and then what you know you you can't really necessarily send him off to do um ragnarok level adventures at least in the same way maybe he could team up with the guardians or something and and show up in future movies as like an assist kind of thing. But for him to have any sort of uh, impactful solo presence in any of these movies, I, I just don't see it anymore. Cause I feel like all the, the dramatic narrative storytelling ground has been mined for him. I mean, yeah, not to jump, not to jump forward too much, but like there are certain major characters in this movie whose arcs are deliberately left dangling, where they give them new information, new motivations, and new like stuff to battle. So when the movie ends, you know, oh, we're going to follow the character for sure. But with Bruce Banner, the movie still ends with him having completely resolved everything. Well, the, I mean, Tony Stark's death does leave a space open in the Avengers um, lineup for someone who's smart, who can create the technology that these people need to use. So, I mean, he could always serve the purpose of, like, uh, who was that in the James Bond movie that, like... Uh, uh, Q. Q. Q, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not the biggest Bond person. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I just imagine that would be Shuri's job from here on out. I think Black Panther is going to be the new Iron Man on the team, personally. But she's she's, yeah. she's, she's all the way in Wakanda, though. Like, that's, like, yeah, all the way yeah, in a different country. They have planes. <laughs> yeah. But, I, yeah, I guess he could serve sort of like a beast role from the early X-Men movies where he just doesn't really leave the lab and doesn't really participate <laughs> in, like, the battle stuff, but he's just, like cooking up strategies and, and like scientific solutions to problems in, in a lab setting, maybe. Oh, speaking of that, I, I love that scene when they first travel back to New York and he does his like begrudging smashing <laughs> of the yeah. car. It's really funny. <laughs> and he's so embarrassed of him, himself as the old Hulk. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay, let's talk about Thor. Let's move on to Thor. Uh, he, 
You know, I think in many ways, if you look at if you look back at Infinity War, that is two people's movies. It's Thanos and it's Thor's. And if you you watch that from the perspective of Thor as the protagonist of that movie, you know, it all comes down to him appearing in Wakanda, that arrival with Stormbreaker and him losing. And this movie is all about uh, how that has affected him. You know, he has uh, become Fat Thor now, which I, <laughs> I think is hilarious. And I'm so glad, by the way, that they didn't just correct that somehow. Like, yeah, I was worried that too. He like flexed super hard and his fat goes away. I was really worried about that. <laughs> Although when he does become the God of Thunder at the the end of the in the final battle, like it, it seems less obvious that he's fat. So maybe like, yeah, he's like of, armored up. Yeah, maybe he's got bigger it, it, armor or something. It's, it works for me because and it looks like a big bear of a dude instead of a sleek, you know, athletic dude. So it, it all works for me still. Yeah. So uh, so in this movie, what is his arc? Oh man, his arc is learning is learning that he has a lot to learn and learning that he's uh, maybe not ready to take on the leadership roles and that maybe uh, it's time for him to go out and find what his purpose is. And that's where we leave him. We leave him ready to co-star in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, right, Ben? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I loved that dynamic. Like, like you're saying, Peter, I think this movie also is so much about Thor's journey. And, you know, from the, looking back on the Thor that was first introduced in the MCU, you never would have thought that he would have been the type of character to be able to pull something like this off. But I think Ragnarok opened that character up in so many ways, not just, um, you know, the, the obvious comedy aspect of it, but because it introduced that comedy side of him, it somehow increased the gravitas of all of the dramatic stuff that Chris Hemsworth is also really good at delivering. And it just, it reshaped that character in such a drastic way that all of this, you know, works and just makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, and his characters have all been largely about him trying to take on that responsibility that had been uh, presented on him. And this, at the end of this movie, he is kind of foregoing that and being like, I want to do what I'm going to do. And actually, that's something I wanted to ask you about because I think one of the only, uh, I do have a couple nitpicks with this movie. And one of them uh is valkyrie the thing that happens at the end with valkyrie and we can talk about her in depth uh, in a second but i'm wondering like if it kind of feels to me even though that she has kind of risen to this leadership role in new asgard which is kind of the sad fishing town um (laughs) that uh he's kind of like oh here here's my uh you are now the king. I don't want it anymore. And it, it feels kind of like a disservice to Valkyrie, who I always imagined would be one to pick up the hammer. I, I get the, the whole hammer thing. Uh, sidebar, Cap picking up the hammer in the final battle is incredible. But um, I I like this because... Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> still back in a second. But yeah. uh, the reason I like this, and, the re- uh, and I get where you're coming from entirely, Peter. The reason I like this is that we get the impression that Valkyrie's actually been running things for the past five years. She's been in charge of New Asgard, and Thor has been a figurehead, the guy who gets the title, but, you know, as she said, only comes out to get his booze to go back inside and keep getting drunk and self-pity. Um, <laughs> so it is this part of Thor's journey is recognizing, I don't need this title. I can let the title go because somebody better than me has taken it. And I, I think him acknowledging that is a huge step forward for a guy whose first movie was entirely about how he was ready to be king, even though he was as far from it as possible. Now, him acknowledging that, you know what? I need more time. I, I'm not ready, so I'll give it to the, the lady who's much older than me and knows what she's doing is is a really 
in in line character choice for him. And yeah. I love, by the way, that Thor's whole storyline, uh, the especially the part when you first sort of meet up with him, when you discover that he's just been drinking and whatever, that, that whole thing is just such a funny inversion of Aquaman, where you've got this this character who is like a huge, um, essentially a God figure who, who is like in living in the sleepy seaside, gorgeous little town and is guzzling beer left and right. But Jason Momoa is just like ripped and rippled. And, and, uh, Chris Hemsworth is just like a blubbering mess playing video games with Korg and Meek all day. Man. I, I love how the, the Rooster Brothers and the, and, and the screenwriters, uh, Peter, what are their names? Help me out. Uh, Marcus, oh, and, Marcus McFeely? and McFeely. Yes, thank you. Um, what they do here with Thor is they manage to take funny Thor from Thor Ragnarok, where he was just so goofy and was really played up with Christian strength, which is to be funny, and managed to, as Ben talked about earlier, uh, merge it with pathos so that he's clearly the same Thor from Thor Ragnarok while still being the same Thor from Thor 1 and 2, while still being this new hybrid character who somehow encompasses it all. And it's a testament to the writing, the directing and Hemsworth that they managed to finally find the sweet spot of what Hemsworth, of what Hemsworth can do as Thor. And that's why it's so exciting to see him alive and going on a space mission. Cause I'm really excited to see this Thor going forward. And I think the Russo brothers and Marcus McFeely need some credit here because this movie goes on these wildly like, tonal shifts from you know we're making you know we're laughing at the comedy of thor being fat to thanos being mentioned and it becoming like this emotional sad uh moment like Mm. in they do that a lot with this character and i i thought it it was really well done uh one other thing i wanted to mention is on set on like uh the sheets and stuff to uh they didn't have Chris Hemsworth's name. He was codenamed Lebowski, which is a reference to the uh, the uh, Tony's joke uh, in the film. So uh, l- let's talk. L- let's move back to the hammer. Let's talk about uh, what they what they called on set. Uh, hammer and shield was the sequence. Uh, what do you have to say about this, Jacob? Because like they have been building up to this for some time in the MCU. Look. Um... I'm an easy mark. I'm, I'm, I admit it, but this, mo- this moment made me happier than anything has in a long time. I, I know they've uh, Cap has wielded the hammer in the comics before, and they hinted at this in Age of Ultron, where he managed to lift the hammer like it's a quarter of an inch. Uh, but Cap being worthy, what, why uh, was why so, wasn't he worthy then? But he's worthy now. I, that's a good question, and the only thing I have to do, say is that. When he was trying to lift, lift before he was trying to lift it at a party, you know, for selfish reasons, at at where he's having a good time. Here he lifted the hammer in service of the universe to go into a life or death battle, and I think that's why. I also think like maybe something has to do with like him knowing uh, that information about uh, Tony's father's death, like uh, in not being honest about that might mm. be keeping him from reaching his full potential. And, and we should also mention that like I, I think. Some fans out there that are like, you know, uh, that don't read the comics and probably don't watch these films over and over again will think that th- how is Captain America picking up the uh, the hammer and using the the superpowers of the God of Lightning? Like, I thought Thor was the only one that was worthy. So can you explain that? No, it just no? looks cool. And I'm for it. <laughs> I thought it was like that. Um, Odin says that anybody that is worthy, like it wasn't just one person. That's what I, I, I remember, but 
Yeah, it was something about anybody who's worthy can wield the powers of Thor or something yeah. like that or, or something. So yeah. I guess that's how he's like imbued with the abilities to use the lightning and, and stuff like that. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. OK, let's uh, let's move on to Valkyrie. Let's talk about Valkyrie because I, met, I mentioned her um, in this movie. We get to see her riding her Pegasus. Uh, which is very cool and like something I didn't expect to see in this movie. Um, what what is uh what is her arc been? I mean, I guess we kind of went over it. She's kind of adopted the leadership role of this community, uh, and before she was just a a warrior. I mean, her arc is that she gave up the life of uh, servitude to go off and live a life of being a mercenary, yeah. and now she's been drawn back in, and she's uh, taken up. The old responsibilities. I mean, after being with Thor and saving the Asgardians, uh, she has resumed duties that uh, she lost faith in, you know, God, a thousand years ago, like they say. And so I'm really hoping they get around to making a Thor 4 or the all-female Marvel character movie they've been pitching about for a while because I would really like to see Queen Valkyrie, uh, her, next chap- her next chapter. I really want to see more of that. Would that film be called Thor 4, or would it be called Valkyrie, or how would that even work? Ah, that's a good idea. I, I I know that we ran a story, because Tessa Thompson, who plays Valkyrie, had, uh, said in an interview that Taika Waititi, who did Thor Ragnarok, has pitched ideas for Thor 4. So, I don't, I don't know, especially since Thor is now part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I feel like in the same way that Hulk was added to Thor Ragnarok, I think we're going to see Valkyrie and Thor kind of bounce around wherever they're needed, and I really hope that... Yeah, they get you know as juicy roles in other corners of the franchise as Hulk and Ragnarok. Okay, let's move on to Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff. Uh, she was introduced in Iron Man Two, is uh, kind of in a small role, and uh, she was, uh, what is she like a black ops uh, spy? Is that how you just describe yeah, her? Spy assassin. Assassin, yeah. And uh, so someone that was a loner that didn't really have many relationships or ties. She did have, you know, a working relationship with Clint Barton, who plays Hawkeye. And uh, in this film, because of the snap, or I mean, actually before the snap, she became part of something bigger. She became part of the Avengers. And because of the snap, she had to elevate herself to uh, a role of leader. We see her... In one scene, basically controlling everything from Avengers headquarters, uh, having this meeting with the the hologram holographic displays with the the Avengers who are around not just the world but universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and she seems uh, to be really upset over what what has happened to Barton. So uh, what is what is the arc of her character in this movie? I think back to her dialogue in the original Avengers, where she talked about having a lot of red in her ledger that she needs to mark out, meaning she's committed a, a number of atrocities that she needs to make right for. And so I think her seeing Clint, you know, Hawkeye, become the kind of person she used to be, uh, and now that, she, that she's like completely moved on from, is damaging in a way because, you know, they were in this together. They were the normal ones. They were the buddies. They were the human beings amongst gods and monsters. And now here they are, here they are him having reverted back to the kind of person that she's escaped from. And I'm reminded of the, also reminded of the scene at the end of The Winter Soldier where uh, Black Widow releases all the Hydra documents and a bunch of, like, top secret government information into the wild to expose the conspiracy and that begins a new arc of the spy becoming transparent. And her arc concludes here where, one, she dies selflessly to help save the universe. And two, when we first meet her, 
she's a politician. She is organizing things from afar. She's running the team. She's being transparent, open, and concerned for everyone else as opposed to working in the shadows. So her transformation is about you know completely letting go of that old life while Hawkeye slips back into it. Yeah, and we're we're seeing the sadness there. Uh, we. You know, once the plan becomes clear, she takes on that uh, the mission of her and Barden going to Vordemir. Is that it? Voromir, I Voromir. think. Um, yeah. And they uh, are going there to get the Soul Stone. So uh, th- this creates an interesting situation where one of them needs to be sacrificed because to get the Soul Stone, you obviously need to make a sacrifice of the the one you love the most i guess um and both of them i guess you know clint who we can talk about in a second actually you know let's, let's talk about clint uh clint who you know lost everything i i asked the russo brothers uh before i saw this movie who is the main character of this film and i think you can make two arguments here i think you can make the argument that it could be iron man or actually three arguments you can make iron man you can make captain america or you can make hawkeye and I, I feel like the the argument at Hawkeye is that it begins with his point of view, his perspective of the snap. And uh, he goes on a, a quite an emotional journey in this film from losing everything to, uh, you know, basically changing his entire persona and becoming Ronin. And by, by the way, that how awesome was that, that fight sequence in Tokyo? That was like one single shot. Yeah, I'm not always, I'm not always big on the Russo's action sometimes, but they that that one knocked out of the park. Yeah. And um and then obviously all leading up to this moment between Black Widow and Hawkeye um in the Soul Stone, uh Ben, what do you have to say about this? So, this is I think one of my only uh quibbles with the movie. I I really enjoyed most of the film and and thought that almost everything was executed really really well. The Soul Stone uh, conundrum was the one thing that I, I didn't fully buy because I felt like the movie, like you said, Peter, it opens with Hawkeye and they spend so much time on the transformation of that character throughout this film, how he's been emotionally impacted from losing his whole family. And you, you get the sense that he should be the one to go over the edge at the end or not at the end, but on Vormir or whatever. And for, Natasha to do it it just I feel like maybe they didn't quite lay the same narrative track there like you do get a couple scenes of her sort of hanging around Avengers HQ and and talking about how this has affected her but it it just it didn't land with me in the same way and uh, you know I I appreciate the uh, sort of ridiculousness of the two of them like fighting to be the one to do it um, and like the uh, almost like the cliffhanger reference of of her falling through his his hand um, once they're over the edge of the cliff like it, it visually it's all well done but just emotionally I wasn't fully convinced it, it sort of felt like a contractual thing like okay this is a way for us to wipe Scarlett Johansson off the table here um, and, and move on with her character and leave Renner around in case we want to use him for something. But I don't know that that moment just didn't land for me. But I think this is probably one of the most surprising moments because everybody knows there's a Black Widow movie in pre-production right now. So what do we think that's going to be? Like, I mean, she she dies here, and I think um, Red Skull basically says that you know this is an everlasting decision. 
But he also says there's a soul for a soul. So there's some point that Steve Rogers is going to have to go to this planet and actually come face to face with Red Skull, which is actually kind of an interesting situation that we'll never see, and give back the stone. And when he gives back the stone, does he get a soul back? How does that work? I don't know. The movie is not interested in that in any way, but I wish it, I, I don't know. It's long enough, I guess. So <laughs> over three hours, um, I mean, it's already pushing it. I'm not sure if they had time to get into that, but maybe they'll be able to explore that in some other property down the line. Jacob, is Black Widow dead? I think Black Widow is dead for good. And I think my, my pet theory, this is pure speculation, guys, is that the Black Widow movie will be a combination of prequel and sequel with Scarlett Johansson returning in scenes set before uh, Endgame as Natasha Romanoff, and that the recently cast uh, Florence Pugh uh, will play the next generation of assassin spy Black Widow, who's maybe resolving something that she, uh, that Natasha could not years earlier. That is my pet theory, cause based purely on casting and based purely on the fact that Black Widow seems pretty definitively dead. Here's a question. We have introduced time travel into this universe. It, which is very dangerous. Uh, they they make it clear that uh, I think they're on the dock and they're having this conversation of, you know, why can't I think Thor brings it up of like, you know, let's just go back in time and save her. Um, why can't they do that now? Like, why can't they like we've seen Thanos past Thanos was brought into our current or 2023 and killed. So why can't, uh, you know, past Black Widow be be brought here from another dimension. It's part of me wonders that since uh, the the Gamora who was brought to 2023 is not the same Gamora that uh, Peter Quill was fell in love with, and that she you know doesn't have the same memory, she hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, are they even rescuing the same person? I mean, yes, maybe technically, but it's not there, Natasha. So I, I that that would be my guess. But the movie's also not interested in that, so I have a really hard time <laughs> coming up with an excuse. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough whenever you introduce these like powers that go beyond the you know the reality of the movie. And actually, speaking of that, let's talk about Captain Marvel really quick because they they really built up uh, that movie, Captain Marvel. On you know you're gonna want to see this movie because this character is gonna be hugely instrumental in the end game. And you know uh, I I think even they released a trailer for Endgame right before Captain Marvel came out that had her at the end in that moment with Thor where she said where he says I think I I like this one Um, so in this movie she is barely in the movie like is uh, is this a problem with her being overpowered I mean she's barely in the movie but if you think about it on top of your like on top of your head she accomplishes a lot she saves Tony Stark who is on the end of his life he's like you know minutes away from dying at the beginning she brings him uh, uh, him and nebula back to earth uh she goes and helps kill thanos uh she leaves and then at the end she she's responsible for taking down uh you know thanos's huge uh star destroyer type ship and uh also if she wasn't there thanos would have been able to snap so she does accomplish a lot, but she's barely in this movie. Is that a problem? I don't think so. This movie, I mean, there's a reason why the snap vanished all the newbies in Infinity War. This movie is a long celebration of the core cast, 
plus Rocket and Nebula. Uh, the movie spends a lot of time with the original Avengers for a reason. And yet Captain Marvel gets a lot to do in the beginning and the end. And it's a lot of fun to see her kick ass. But I think having her around for the core of the movie would have undermined the fact that we're saying goodbye to the core Avenger team. And the movie knows very well we have another decade ahead of us of Captain Marvel, Black Panther, and, and, and Doctor Strange. So it lets them come in when they need to while making sure the focus is purely on the characters who are saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just worried about her future in this universe. Like, it just, it just seems so overpowered. But, uh, you know, when I talked to F- Feige about it, he said that they're going to explore the uh, the limitations of Captain Marvel, is the way he put it. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, Hawkeye. Hawkeye is going to have a TV show for Disney+. Plus. Uh, ben, I think you wrote about this for Monday. So what do we think that's going to be in in the the shadow of this film because obviously he has a family so family man hawkeye is not that exciting and originally we had heard that kate bishop he was going to be training kate bishop but his daughter and the person we see him training in this movie is not kate bishop it's his daughter and he calls her hawkeye so so what is the tv show yeah the the tv show according to an early report was supposed to be Clint Barton passing the Hawkeye mantle to Kate Bishop, who's the, a, fav, a fan favorite character from the comics. And um, but, but I don't know. I feel like with Natasha being, you know, giving up her life and that sort of hanging over Clint and him, you know, be, clearly being affected by the loss of one of his best friends in the world, that could maybe be the the inciting incident for him to sort of put down the bone arrow for good. Um, and, and that would maybe explain why he's deciding to pass the mantle on to somebody else, whether or not that's actually Kate Bishop or whether that just ends up being his daughter, Lila, because like you said, he refers to her specifically as Hawkeye. Uh, it remains to be seen, but you know, Marvel has, has a history of doing this Marvel studios, I should say, where they take elements from the comics and just sort of tweak them a little bit to, to fit the cinematic what they're doing cinematically instead of doing a direct adaptation. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibility for, this character Lila, the daughter, to sort of take the Kate Bishop role, uh, and maybe like they could save Kate Bishop for later on down the line or something. You know, if they if they don't want to introduce her right away, um, it's still up in the air. But those are some possibilities. I do want to point out that uh, Cassie Lang, Scott Lang's daughter, who's recast for this movie, her and Kate Bishop, along with other characters, form the Young Avengers in the comics, which is a really beloved team of teenage superheroes who have ties to like a lot of. Uh, other heroes like there's characters who are, are either referencing other heroes with their costumes or directly have blood ties so i i'm wondering if they're if they're casting these characters like casting a kate bishop and casting a young an older uh, cassie lang so they can maybe give us a young avengers movie that would be interesting okay let's talk about war machine james rhodes uh he is at the end of this movie alive uh he doesn't really have like a huge arc in this movie he's kind of a supporting player uh, is his story still going? I think he's probably done avenging. I think uh, Don Cheadle's enjoyed the checks. We've enjoyed watching him. But I think as we enter the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think War Machine is probably over and done with because his whole goal, his whole original goal in this universe was to be Tony Stark's, you know, bantering board. Tony Stark says something funny to Rhodey and Rhodey reacts. And that's kind of the foundation of, yeah. of why he's there. But Ben, do you see any room forward for Rhodey? 
Not really, except as maybe like the position of the the elder statesman, the veteran who may be able to provide some provide some wise counsel to the the younger class, as it were. Um, but so like, yeah, they could keep him around, and maybe he could just hang out with Hulk and whoever, whatever the other veterans are are still there. But um, yeah, dramatically, he's another one of those characters that I feel like has served the purpose that that he originally had. I do love the interaction he has with um, Nebula, where I mean, they're both people that are uh, kind of cy- cyborgs at this point, right? Like they're uh, altered with technology. And uh, he has that moment with her, like uh, telling her that we, we you need to make the best out of what the, the, the cards you've been dealt. And uh, I don't know. I, I just thought that was a nice, nice moment there. Um, let's talk about Scarlet Witch, who in, in you know, she's dealt with a lot of deaths so far in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We saw her introduced in Age of Ultron, and she lost her brother, and uh, she ended up falling in love with uh, Vision, who was a man-slash-android that was killed at the end of Infinity War and Thanos' step to get all the stones. And she shows up at the end of this movie, you know, from the portals, she she shows up and uh, basically kick, kicks uh, Thanos's ass. Like, I, I think if you were gonna s- say who did the most damage to Thanos, I would say it was Scarlet Witch. Yeah, I'd agree. Either him or Captain Marvel. But in any case, seeing her enraged and reacting uh, to a death like that was something I kind of wished. That we saw from Bruce Banner. One one of my quibbles with Bruce Banner is that a guy who loved Natasha so much only has one tiny moment of reflection, and it's actually with Natasha, which is nice. I'm sorry, it's actually actually with um, Wanda, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to, to actually have the catharsis of an Avenger avenge a loved one uh, was something that the movie really needed in that climax after so much death. So this is another character, um, Vision. We don't think he is alive right like we think he was killed in in infinity war we were told by the screenwriters back then that every character that died in infinity war died and we don't think that includes the dusted and so far that seems to be technically true right gamora died vision died um who else died loki Loki and heimdall yeah I mean, Although I, a new version of Loki may be out there now, but who knows? Yeah, so. we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but Vision and Scarlet Witch have a TV show coming to Disney Plus streaming service called WandaVision. And uh, what is this going to be if Vision is dead? I mean, I guess Vision could still be alive. Like Shuri was uh, working on him before, you know, he was killed. So maybe she was able to download his complete consciousness somehow? That's my guess. Uh, they've actually kind of simplified Wanda's powers for the movies. I think they may actually expand them for the TV show. She, she, her powers are not just telekinesis. They're, she warps reality. She can change reality at will. And I'm wondering, essentially, in the, in the comics, she's used her powers to do like extreme things. Uh, if they will... The series will be about her trying to recreate Vision and maybe having the repercussions of recreating a dead loved one and realize they're, that they're not the same person or something's wrong. Uh, my, my guess, because I think bringing Vision back as the same person, like, you know, oops, he's live now, is a cheap shot and something that they've managed to avoid here at Endgame. So I'm hoping that WandaVision is, you know, something a bit crazier, a bit more far out, and we'll actually explore the concept of of what it means to 
have powers where we can change reality and trying to fix that. Um, I know Elizabeth Olsen has given us a little bit of info on what this WandaVision TV series is. Ben, you have an article going up on Monday about all of this. What do we yeah, know? Yeah, she, she just said that the show is going to have a 1950s-style aesthetic, um, which sort of plays into Jacob's theory about her maybe trying to you know either create a new version of vision or once shuri has has fixed the vision that it's like the grayed out husk that we saw at the end of infinity war maybe the two of them could just sort of you know 1950s aesthetic uh conjures images of you know leave it to beaver and you know sort of suburban lifestyle um and it's possible that and jacob could probably speak to this a little bit better but i guess tom king had a, a vision comic book series that's sort of like this would be maybe like an inversion of that. Yeah, there's a uh, award-winning run on the vision that's 12 issues long. It's brilliant by right from writer Tom King, and the gist of it is that Vision moves to the suburbs uh, to work as a consultant in Washington D.C., giving up superheroism, and he creates a robotic android family to give him uh, a domestic life. So I'm genuinely wondering if Wanda, if they'll take this basic premise but reverse it with Wanda trying to create a peaceful life with her uh, lo- with with her love of her life. Uh, but you think in, in the comic things go very wrong for Vision, and I wonder if they'll go very wrong for Wanda. Hmm. Okay, let's uh let's talk about Falcon. Uh, Sam Wilson, who you know starts off as a friend of Captain America in what Captain America Winter Soldier. Yep. Yeah, and uh, he's running a support group. I think this might be the same support group that Captain America is running here in this movie maybe not uh and um he returns from the snap uh with the great uh on your left um and he at the end of this movie he is presented by old captain america with the shield which i'm kind of curious what your thought is on this jacob because i'm not a person that has read anything falcon in the comics but it it seems like he earned that shield way too easily and also (laughs) it seems to me that he has no superpowers and i want a captain america that has some kind of super abilities uh when i first left the theater i talked to my wife about this i'm I'm just imagining old man steve rogers sticking at the shield and he's thinking okay there's uh i know that uh falcon and winter soldier are going to be there Whatever one approaches me first gets the shield. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he's probably wondering, like, why didn't he give the Bucky? He's oldest friend who, who does have superpowers. But uh, when Falcon became Captain America in the comics a few years ago, the whole gist of it was, you know, he still has the wings, but he he represents America. He is a, he is a soldier who who uh, fought wars and came home and has dedicated his life to helping other veterans. Meanwhile, uh, Winter Soldier, who's also been Captain America in the comics, is still Bucky, but he's still a brainwashed assassin with a lot to clean up for. So Falcon, as Captain America, will have to work five times as hard as Captain America to get the job done. But he represents the he represents what, what, what Steve always strived to, which is, you know, the best of the United States, the, the, the best that a soldier can be. Which Bucky really does not, uh, and I'm ho- and if they lean on that and lean on the fact that being Captain America will be hard, then uh, I think it could be a really interesting direction. 
And we didn't mention the elevator scene with Captain America, call back to Captain America Winter Soldier, also directed by the Russo brothers. But there is that uh, great line that with Captain America saying, Hail Hydra, which is actually kind of a reference to the comic books. Yeah, there was a very divisive run a few years ago where Captain America was, was turned into a Hydra agent through all kinds of cosmic uh, shifting around. But here it's just, it's, I think it's the biggest laugh last night in the theater uh, of everyone expecting that our elevator scene to play out as a fight scene again. And Captain America just walks right out after saying the magic words. <laughs> and uh, what um, Winter Soldier, like, is he really wasn't in much of this movie. Is there is there much to say here? No, he's Bucky. He's Bucky. Uh, he's it, tormented. He needs to get a haircut. It did seem to me when Steve Rogers was going to go back in time to return the stones that Bucky knew what was going on. Like, after seeing this movie three times, it, it's clear that he's the only one that gives him, like, a huge hug and says, I'm going to miss you. And, like, you know, he's going away for five seconds. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems like Bucky gets it. And, like, he even, you know, nods to uh, Falcon when he's uh, the old man's over there. Like, it seems like he, he was ahead of this whole this whole story. That makes me feel better. Because I, I, I probably was, like, really perturbed that... that um. Bucky was was not invited over to go, you know, have the reunion. But Steve already told him his entire plan, you know, earlier, and they had a chance, you know, to say the goodbyes off screen. And I feel a lot better about Bucky not being present with Steve for that moment. By the way, uh, Ben, you had this theory in the chat, which I have adopted in my time travel article about old man <laughs> Steve Rogers. I, I just thought we we should relay it here. Yeah, uh, you know, so there, there's the scene where they go back to, I think it's 1970 or something at the um, Camp Lehigh, and they get the vials of Pym particles. And I, I just, you know, we were trying to figure out how uh, Captain America's, uh, how Old Man Cap couldn't break the timeline, even though it sort of does. And I'm sure you guys will talk about this in a future episode yeah. of this podcast. But um I don't know. I, I was just like theorized, wildly speculating that maybe he grabbed an extra vial of pin particles and maybe I, I, I don't even know anymore, Peter, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's so it's so convoluted. Um, even my like attempt to try to work through it all uh, doesn't <laughs> doesn't even fully make sense to me. Yeah, but the image the image that you proposed is that of. You have Steve Rogers, old man Steve Rogers, setting up a chair and watching from afar as <laughs> as this whole epic battle unfolds because he knows what's going to happen. He's lived through it and he gets to, you know, enjoy it for once from the outside. Which yeah, I, he is. He is the one person who knows exactly when and where this whole thing is going to go down. So unless he told other people about <laughs> it along the way. Maybe he sold tickets and just made a boatload of money. <laughs> yeah. OK, uh, Bucky and uh, Falcon, they are going to have a TV show called uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I'm guessing could be retitled to Captain America and Winter Soldier. Yeah, I was wondering about that um, because obviously Sam Wilson has the shield now. So it's either the early adventures of of Sam as Captain America or maybe it's like he has accepted the shield but hasn't fully accepted the role and and all the responsibilities that come with that. Maybe the show is going to be sort of a transition period from him 
you know, learning what his version of Captain America can be. Or Kevin Feige has also mentioned that some of the Marvel Disney Plus shows could be prequels. So theoretically, you could, you know, catch up with with him and Winter Soldier doing some previous adventures and and bantering and all that stuff uh, before the events of Endgame. Um, so I, I don't really think that's going to be an option. But he did mention the possibility of some some of these things being prequels. So it, it should shouldn't be completely discounted. It it does seem to me like Sam Wilson accepts the shield, but he does not accept the role. Like he even says it feels like it belongs to someone else or something like that. I'm wondering if this show is going to be kind of the the arc of the show is going to be him coming to acceptance of this role and the the shield and everything it means. And by the next time we see him in the movies, it will be after that show. Um, Right. And, you know, he will be actual Captain America. Yeah. And that's the thing about the shows, too. I think Feige has mentioned, like, you know, some of these uh, the events of these shows will be able to sort of flesh out character moments and developments and arcs and stuff that won't necessarily be fully required if you just want to watch the Marvel movies. So this is the perfect example of that, right? If, if they were to flesh out Sam's full acceptance of that role and then just pick up in the next movie, people who don't watch the show will just be like, oh, he was given the shield at the end of Endgame and now he's Captain America and, and just, you know, make that leap that way. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to some of the more uh, smaller characters. By smaller characters, I still mean characters that have their own standalone films. But, uh, you know, this movie just has too many people to deal with. Let's talk about Black Panther. He doesn't really have a huge role in this. He leads Wakanda into that epic battle at the end. Do we have a name for that battle, by the way? Like, I like calling, you know, the Battle of New York. Like, I like having some kind of point of reference, but we don't. We don't really have a name, do we? I, I was suggesting the Battle of Upstate New York because that's where Avengers HQ is and that's where <laughs> that's the setting for the whole thing. And as a as sort of a, a joke reference to the Battle of New York, I thought that that will maybe that's what I'm calling it until I hear an official source elsewhere. I like it. Let's go with that. Um, so at the end of this movie, we see Black Panther, Black Panther and his other uh, Wakandan royalty uh, Shuri and whatever, uh, overlooking the Wakandan skyline. Uh, I, I, I can't really even tell after seeing this for three times, three times, like has Wakanda been as devastated by the snap as the rest of the world? Like it, it's very hard to see. Like it looks like I'm assuming it has, but Wakanda has a habit of doing things better than the rest of the world. So they've clearly cleaned the city up, but they're also celebrating because you know, everybody's been unstapped. So, yeah. And we should mention that even though, they win in the end of this movie. The snap still happened. So there still is that five year gap of, uh, you know, in what the after effects it has on this world, which I think uh, is going to come into play in these upcoming films. Uh, speaking of upcoming films, Spider-Man Far From Home is the next one. And I think some people are a little confused by the reunion between Peter Parker and Ned, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But let's talk about Spider-Man's arc thus far in these films, Jacob? Uh, Spider-Man has learned that with great power comes great responsibility, Peter. That's, <laughs> um, no. But um, no, I, I, so far, you know, it's for him, it's been his main arc's been in Homecoming, which is where he went from having to earn his suit back. And here I feel like he, 
he's been less of having an arc in Infinity War Endgame and more of being a device to get Tony where he needs to be. And that's fine because Tom Holland is so charming and so sweet. But he seem, he exists purely to give something, to, give giving giving Tony the son he has yet to have. And and then when he has a daughter, you know, he remembers Peter Parker. He we see him pull that picture off the shelf, and the and like the guidance and love he's given his daughter is something that he finally gives to Peter in that hug on the battlefield. And so I think Spider-Man is very much serving Tony Ar- Tony's arc here. But I think that Tony's death is going to give Spidey one hell of an arc in Far From Home. Yeah. And, and Spidey's uh, dusting in Infinity War was the only moment in that film that uh, brought, or, you know, made me tear up. In this film, when it's reversed and he's talking to Tony and telling him he won, it's just so crushing. Um and I think, you know, Far From Home is going to have to deal with this because not only did he provide Tony Stark with the son that he never had, but Tony provided Peter with the father he never had, right? So um, how is that going to affect him in Far From Home? He, uh, y- you know, we know he's going on this uh, class trip. We see at the end of this movie him being reunited with Ned. A lot of people are confused with that. How are they both back in school? Uh I think that it's a little bit uh, confusing storytelling wise. The last time that Peter saw Ned was in that bus in Infinity War when Thanos's ship went over New York City. So they have been separated for some time, but both of them actually were dusted. So they are back in the same class with Zendaya and with Flash. And um, they were just, I guess, all lucky that they were all dusted. Yeah, that's the thing is like, the, you know, what are the odds that that Peter's best friends and the his colleagues in class were all dusted because it's half the universe and really half of them theoretically should have gone away. But the numbers just sort of fell in favor. So all of those characters could be reunited again and on the same page in uh, Far From Home because for everybody else, for half of Peter's school, the half of the, the class was still there. So theoretically, they either continued with school and like graduated and moved on with their lives or just like all schooling came to a halt for five years while everybody was like, I, I find it that hard to believe. Yeah. So you, you have a feeling that like, you know, half the people that you've been going to school with for your whole life have moved on beyond you. Um, but it just so turns out, as we've seen in the trailers for Far From Home already, that MJ and Flash Thompson and Betty Brandt and Ned are all there with Peter. So you have to assume that they were all dusted and then re- restored, I guess. You know, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, how the comic books have these big uh series that connect all the whole universe as a whole and it kind of puts these standalone stories to stop and then dramatically affects them in ways that kind of suck because you were into what the story was happening and it just seems like this you know foot just like came down and snopped stomped on the series that you're reading i i think this is probably the better way of doing it where the thing still happened but they can still go on with their plans of what they set up with these group of characters in this high school. Jacob, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is the, uh, if Endgame and Infinity War were the big, what's the big crossover event in the Spider-Man series with its own, you know, individual series. And this is the ideal scenario of that where you can know the little details and there should be a line of dialogue, but man, I can't believe half a class has graduated four years ago. Uh, but yeah, the platonic ideal is that after the crossover event, you can choose to keep in mind the big universe changes or you can disregard them and enjoy the story at hand. And I think that's going to be 
the process moving forward. And I, I really think they're going to pull it off because I, I believe that there's uh, people who just watch Spider-Man movies should be able to watch far from home and totally follow and totally enjoy it. Even though they may not get one or two lines of dialogue. That said, Kevin Feige has said that this is the last film in this phase. So it's not infinity war and infinity war ends the infinity saga, but the, I, I guess Spider- or Endgame does. Or yeah, sorry. Endgame ends the Infinity Saga, but uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home is going to end this phase. So I'm wondering, is this going to be like one giant after-credit scene? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be. From what we've seen in the trailer, it looks like it's its own thing, and it didn't even have any references at all yeah. to anything that you know any of the events that we've seen. You know, people were, were theorizing that it could even be a prequel, and I don't know if we fully know that, although Amy Pascal, the producer, I think has previously said that it's supposed to pick up a few minutes after the end of uh, Endgame. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Doctor Strange. Uh, Jacob, I know he's one of your favorite characters. Can you talk about his arc thus far? Uh, yeah, he's my favorite Marvel superhero, and he doesn't get a lot to do here other than be really cool until the very end where he gives uh, Tony the – he puts up his finger to say one. Is it referencing the one in 14 million chances to have to win this, uh, which Tony reads correctly and sacrifices himself? But I – even though there isn't a huge arc for Doctor Strange over Infinity War Endgame, it does continue where he was at the end of his solo movie, which was you know having learned to accept death, accept pain, and accept um, his new role. And his new role is to safeguard the universe and safeguard, you know, this realm of existence and him, you know, coming back and after giving Tony the you know prophetic, uh, you know, this is one way to do it and making that clear to Tony, you know, it real seals the deal on Dr. Strange as being an incredibly powerful figure moving forward, even if it doesn't necessarily advance his character. You know, I, I know we did mention captain marvel earlier but I'm, I'm wondering you know at the end of this movie we see her she's gone through another haircut change she, love it love it sorry yeah. sorry i love the haircut <laughs> no i do too uh i like it i'm just wondering what is captain marvel 2 gonna be do you think that will be set in like uh you know the 2000s before any of this or do you think we're gonna see the years of her helping out the universe in the snap or or is it just gonna fast forward to you know 2024 after the events of the infinity saga Ben, what would you rather see? I think I would rather see uh, her in, like, after the Infinity Saga, just going out and helping the planets that, you know, that that need help. Um, you know, the idea of another prequel, it works for Wonder Woman, but I don't think you can apply that same thing to Captain Marvel. I, I don't think narratively we need to see any more of her before she meets up with the Avengers and the, that team. So I think... I think she would be more interesting as a character having the full breadth of the experiences that we know that she's had, like for us to be able to follow her at that point. Yeah. Okay. I I buy that. Um, Let's move on to Ant-Man, Scott Lang. By the way, I thought it was so funny how how many theories that revolved around how Ant-Man, what Ant-Man's been up to in the quantum realm, how he's going to escape the quantum realm, and, uh, you know... There's tons. You can go to Reddit and see thousands of different theories, and it all came down to be a rat. A rat <laughs> in the right place at the right time. And it, it, honestly, if you ask me, the rat is the true hero of this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love this. Be, uh, I, I love Ant-Man. I love the way Paul Rudd plays him. And part of me is wondering if this is the last we see of him and the Wasp, because their movies were never huge moneymakers. And at the end of this movie, they're with Cassie 
you know, together and happy. And there's not a lot of lingering baggage from those movies. So I asked Peter and Ben, is this the last we see Ant-Man and the Wasp? I feel like they would be really well served to, you know, as supporting characters in somebody else's franchise. I feel like I I, I want to see more of them, but I don't know if we need a full movie of them. Um, that being said, uh, Michael Pena, you know, you can always use more of him in the MCU. So I don't know, maybe maybe bringing those supporting characters into some other movie would maybe feel like too many uh, cameos or too many people crashing the party. But um See, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I want to see a Disney Plus show of uh, that con, uh, that uh, the business that Michael Pena is. What, what is it called? X-Con? Oh, yeah. X-Con. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, want to, I want to see a sitcom of that. But I, I do think there's something more to this. Like you mentioned that Cassidy becomes the young – What? who does she become? I can't remember her superhero name. I will Google it but she you said, guys give me some time. She's in the Young Avengers is what you said. Yes. And um, I think, you know, you could have Ant-Man and the Wasp as, you know – supporting characters in, in a film like that I think that's uh, viable and I think also that the quantum realm is not done with this universe I think we're going to get more of that so I think there is a need to have them involved some way generally it seems like Marvel is going with trilogies right like it seems like except for someone like Hulk <laughs> it seems like they are building trilogies of films. We're, we're expecting Guardians to end at three. Iron Man ended at three. Uh, you know, a Thor might go on, but uh, it seems like they're building to a tri- trilogy. So I think we will get another Ant-Man film of some kind. Uh, and for the record, uh, Cassie Lang uh, was introduced first as stature, referring to the fact that she can grow large. And uh, a few years later, a decade later, um, her power, she became more of a shrink-based uh, character, and she became Stinger. So I don't know if they'll use either of those names, but that's, those were Cassie Lang's uh, superhero names in the comics. Okay. Let's talk about, um, let's go uh, cosmic. Let's talk about Star-Lord, Peter Quill. Uh, he, in this film, doesn't have, like, a huge role. We actually get to uh, visit, revisit the opening scene from Guardians of the Galaxy, which I think is one of the funniest moments of this film, of seeing him dancing from the third-person point of view, of not <laughs> yeah. being in the headphones. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at stake, you know, he kind of cost us everything in the last movie. And uh, we don't see the weight of that on this character, though. No, not yet. And I, I do wonder if that will manifest in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, uh, because the movie seems, seems to be setting up the Guardians going on a, on a search to find Gamora, since that's the screen he's looking at at the very end. So I would imagine that uh, Volume 3 will deal with the fact that Quill let half the universe die, albeit temporarily. And, you know, he, uh, the love of his life is out there, but she's not the same woman. And you know, it's going to be. But he this... did it for love, Jacob. He did it for love. <laughs> he did it because he did it because he's a terrible superhero, and that's why I love him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that all the Guardians are going to be on this big um, quest, and you know, maybe his surrogate family of you know brothers and sisters, he no longer has a father figure in his life, are going to help him, you know, overcome the fact that he <laughs> really screwed things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gamora. Uh, she died in the last film. She was the sacrifice that Thanos made to get the Soul Stone. In this film, she reappears as 2014 version of Gamora, who ends up going into the future and helping uh, future Nebula escape and comes in co- contact with Quill and actually like kicks him in the nuts. And uh, a funny scene, uh, we do see after uh, Tony snaps that uh, she's missing, right? So the question is, 
was she like when Tony snaps, is he like, I'm, I want all of Thanos's people to disappear. That would include Gamora, right? Yeah, but she's no longer Thanos's person. Yeah, she's, she she's, turned she's, on him at that point, I think. But, but how does he know that? He doesn't, but the stones know. The stone, yeah. stones know everything. So yeah. she's out there somewhere, and we're, we're assuming that Star-Lord's going to have to find him. This is going to be the search for Spock, but with Gamora. Yeah, and I bet they're going to introduce, um, oh, goodness, um, uh, Adam Warlock teased in Volume 2 as a possible you know, barrier on that journey, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, of course, Thor's going to be there because Thor's part of Guardian now. That's going to be the best. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm wondering if we're not going to get a Thor 4 proper, if we're just going to get the as Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, <laughs> you know, third film. Uh, okay, let's talk about Nebula. I think that the opening scene in this film where she's with Tony on this uh, ship on the 22nd day of a journey and, you know, they're barely surviving. By the way, 22nd, there's been 22 Marvel films. I think there's a connection there. Uh, that's my theory. Um, and she, I love her in the, these opening scenes where like she is playing this paper football game with Tony. And for the first time in her life, she wins something and she doesn't know how to react. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I love Karen Gillan's Nebula. I, lo- I love her transition from being this tough, hard-ass, evil henchman to being like someone who loves her sister, and and even though she never stops being this, you know, uh, hard-ass, she is um, have transitioned into a genuinely good person. And I, I think playing that balance of being somebody who is really gruff but has found room in her heart for love is actually a lot harder than it sounds. And I really, really like what they do with her here. Yeah, and there's also the shot with her and Rocket, as uh, right after they get back to Earth and they they hold hands. <laughs> it really really got me. Really got me. Um, okay, uh, Rocket. So so we think Nebula is going to join the Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, continuing their mission. I mean, we we don't think we see her at the end of the film, so we we know that she's probably going to be in Guardians three. Uh, Rocket is also going to be part of that crew. Uh, what? What did what was Rocket's role in this movie? I mean, he really had a, a little bit of a backseat here. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess he I loved the idea of, of during the time heist where he is with Thor and they go back to the, the dark world setting and he's basically slapping Thor in the face and telling him to get his shit together. Um, I, I love that dynamic between them. And, and it seemed like they they started that dynamic in Infinity War, right? Like when they first met up and they went off on their side quest to, to get Stormbreaker going. So I like the idea of Rocket and Thor being uh being friends and how that might like um, how that relationship, their special new friendship might um, provide some sort of threat to Peter Quill later. Like I, I, you know, the way that Quill and Thor um, are always in constant competition with each other is just always hilarious to me. And uh, the idea of all of these guys coming together in another guardians movie is, is really, really entertaining and, um, and like an exciting prospect. But in terms of like what Rocket actually does in this movie, I guess he steals the ether from Natalie yeah. Portman off screen. And uh, yeah, by the way, do much. we do we think that was actually Natalie Portman, or was uh, I mean from a new scene, or was that just old footage from Thor: The Dark World? I am almost certain that's a shot from Thor: Dark World. They just added Rocket into. Yeah. Um, okay, we have a bunch of people here that we probably can go quickly over. Drax, Mantis, and Groot. Uh, I mean, pretty much the same, right? They're part of the uh, Gardens Galaxy crew. We don't really learn much about them here. I'm actually kind of sad that we don't really get a 
significant moment of Rocket and Groot being reunited. We do have that moment during the fight, but it feels like so uh, willy-nilly. Yeah, but we do get Drax encouraging a knife fight, and that's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, okay, uh, Valkyrie we've already talked about. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the main people from Wakanda. Like, uh, they don't really have, like, a significant part in this movie, as we mentioned with uh, Black Panther. But we do see this transmission in um, when Black Widow is leading the Avengers headquarters. She's having this uh, these transmissions from Avengers from around the universe. And she does have this conversation about uh, with Wakanda about um, there was some shifts underneath the ocean and uh, they were talking about that it was just an earthquake. I know I've talked to my friend Sean Gerber, who play, who runs Marvel Studio News, and he actually theorizes that this is a subtle setup for Namor. Do you, Namor the Submariner, for people who don't know who that is, it's basically like Marvel's version of Aquaman. What do you think of that theory, Jacob? Uh, I think it's actually a good one. Uh, I, I really like Namor as a character and to keep you really fun as a villain in a new phase of Marvel movies. I think the one issue they have is though, even though I'm pretty sure Namor's earliest incarnations may have come before Aquaman, I think. Um, it's going to invite inevitable Aquaman uh, comparisons because they're, they're both arrogant kings of Atlantis, uh, except that Namor does not like humanity and this, and often wants to destroy them. But I think it's a really, really uh, fun idea. And the idea of Namor waging war on Wakanda in Black Panther 2 could be a really interesting uh, plot. You have King versus King with T'Challa versus Namor. But this is all speculation, albeit fun speculation. Yeah. So now we get into like the the smaller roles, so we can go through this pretty quick. Uh, Nick Fury just appears at the, the end funeral. Is this going to be the end for him in the MCU? Oh, no. He's in Spider-Man. Far from oh, home. yeah. Yeah. Why am I forgetting that? Yeah, so we will see him uh, in the next movie. So there you go. Um, I was kind of disappointed to not see him. And I mean, Captain Marvel has that moment where she sees the screen and Nick Fury is missing. She realizes that he's been one of the ones that were dusted. And she is nearby on the porch with Nick Fury. But, like, I wish we had a scene of, like, them being reunited after what we assume has been what, like 30 years or something like that? I mean, maybe she's come back to Earth in that time. I don't know. Um, but, I, but I was disappointed to see that we didn't get that. So um, Pepper Potts, she, in this movie, does don her own Iron Man suit in the final battle. Uh, this is something that she did before in Iron Man 3. Uh, after Tony's death, do you think she has? A, there's a chance that she could be returning and taking on the mantle. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has said in press that she thinks she's done with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I get it. She's been doing this for 11 years, and Pepper has never played a has played a major role in a few movies. But I know a lot of uh, fans, and some who've written for our site uh, articles about this, have wanted Pepper in actually in battle in a suit of armor for a long time. So I'm glad that happened. I wish it happened a little earlier, to be honest. By the way, we had that cool moment where all the female characters like are in action together. It's like the ultimate fan service moment because logistically it doesn't really make much sense why they were all in one area of this battle. But you know what? I I get I, I clapped every time. Um, yeah, my my wife um, grabbed my arm and shrieked. Oh, not shrieked! Whispered loudly in my ear, 
the ladies. So <laughs> now uh, I, I hit the right notes for the right people. I'll leave it there. Yeah, I, I do want to ask. Tessa Thompson mentioned this a few years ago when Thor Ragnarok that they approached uh, Kevin Feige at the premiere with a bunch of the, the the actresses from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, basically demanding that they get their own female Avengers style team up. And he said, "In time, or you know, something's planned, or something like that." It, it was this it is it just this moment or do you think we're going to get something bigger later on uh, i think we're talking bigger right ben i mean this god i i hope so although like you said peter it didn't really make a lot of uh logistical sense for them to be there so i'm not sure how you would how how you would lay a foundation for an entire movie for that to make sense but i mean i'm sure so you, do, of- you just uh, do a Why the Last Man uh, mashup where <laughs> all the men get dusted somehow. And... You mean half the universe disappears, Peter? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I get, exactly. Exactly, Ben. Okay. Um, who else do we have? Happy Hogan. We're probably never going to see him again, right? Right. But his final moment with with Morgan, Tony's daughter, is really sweet. And a callback to the first film when he brings uh, – a return home from war, Tony, a bunch of hamburgers and fast food with him promising her some cheeseburgers. Uh, Actually, he is in the beginning of one of the trailers for Far From Home. So we're going to at least see him (laughs) briefly. There we go. Good. Give John Favreau a couple acting paychecks. I I think he's underrated as an actor. I'm happy to see him in these movies. So keep it up. You know, uh, probably not worth talking about, but I'll say anyways, at the Avengers Endgame Junket, they made custom... Uh, t-shirts for anybody who attended from the character posters and I got one of Rocket and afterwards I regretted not getting the character poster of Happy Hogan of uh, <laughs> of John Favreau because that would be my only chance to have a t-shirt with John Favreau on the t-shirt yeah Peter that, you, you messed up man you messed up big time Yeah. <laughs> okay uh, Hank Pym and uh, Janet Van Dyne we'll probably see in a future uh, Ant-Man kind of thing uh, we'll see Wong in uh in the next um, Doctor Strange, uh, Peggy Carter, she's dead, right? Yeah, she's dead. We'll never see her again, but but we know Cap could spend his life with her. It's all we need. What about Sharon Carter? Sharon Carter, like, that was her granddaughter? So is it a chance uh, that that was... Grandniece, actually. Grandniece, okay. So uh, w- will she, like, will we see her again? I hope not. She's a wet blanket of a character, and she only existed so, so, so people wouldn't say Cap was gay. So I really, really dislike Sharon Carter. Yeah, yeah it seemed like the, the MCU was embarrassed of her while she was in scenes. Like, they were actively embarrassed that she was being included in these movies at the time. So I'm sure that now that, you know, that, that now that Cap's story is concluded, there's no reason to bring her back. Yeah. Um, the ancient one, I mean, this is just a one and done. It was a fun thing to see her defending the, uh, the building against the, the battle of New York. Right. Yeah. I I love that. I love the idea that the Avengers are off doing their own battle, but the other hidden corners of the MCU are still there, which means ancient one battling aliens on the rooftop. And that came from Tilda Swinton. I mean, she's, she's so good in Dr. Strange. She's so good here. And in many ways it's her choice that lets, you know, Everybody wins. She willingly gives up the time stone to Bruce Banner. Aunt May, um, it, who is actually dusted, according to the Russo brothers. Um, oh, okay. It's good to know. Yeah, she was dusted. And uh, so, but if you look at her in this funeral scene, she still looks like she's like 30 years old because, I mean, that actress always doesn't age. So, Marissa Tomei yeah. is a beautiful woman. 
Yeah. So uh, <laughs> apparently, uh, you know, I'm guessing she was dusted for plot reasons because if you had her not dusted, she would have had to deal with losing Peter for five years. Mm-hmm. And that would have been like a, a big change to that character. And this way, it just makes it easier for yeah. us. Yeah. So uh, Jane Foster uh, still not dating Thor, but like, could she come back or is it, is this the end for her? Natalie Portman is donezo, and Thor is no longer on Earth. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we we saw that Der- Doctor Eric Selvig was dusted. I was actually surprised not to see him in this movie, other than that one screen. Is there a chance that he will return? Ben, uh, are you a Doctor <laughs> Eric Selvig fan? Because I am. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, he's one of those characters. I don't think has he been on screen since the Avengers? Did he appear in anything? He was in Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Wow, I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, Jacob, I can't say that I'm a Dr. Eric Selvig fan. <laughs> so uh, well, I'll rephrase. I'm a, I'm a Stellan Skarsgård being silly fan, which means I'm a Dr. <laughs> Eric Selvig fan. So, I, you know, I, I'd say bring him back for a couple of cameo appearances. Keep, keep Skarsgård alive in the MCU. I mean, now that you have like Bruce Banner serving the role of like science master and and you've you've got uh, Peter Parker in the MCU and you've got Shuri, you've got all these smart figures. Uh, I, I just don't <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's any reason to have Selvig anymore, but OK, there's no need. Um, I'm going to skip a bunch of this, but I do want to talk really quickly about Korg and Meek. Uh, they were seen in Thor's uh house or apartment or whatever on new asgard and i just love by the way meek uh using his like what knife hands to eat the pizza and korg <laughs> is uh, fighting with someone while playing uh fortnite <laughs> oh man that that's such a great moment and hearing taiko itt's voice again and just like of course these guys would be hanging out and of course they would like be so careful to go out of their way to not mention Thanos and, and try to like just be good friends to Thor and like protect him. And speaking of good friends moments, how about when uh, when Hulk gives um, Scott Lang two tacos after all of the, <laughs> the filling blows out because the jet shows up in Avengers H- uh, HQ? I just thought that was such a nice moment. I was like, oh, the friendship tacos, guys. Yeah. I love that. I almost wish, uh, wish they, um, Corgan Meek, were adopted by the Guardians of the Galaxy, but I guess maybe they're going to be part of Valkyrie's crew. Yeah, and there's not enough room in that ship for that many people, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Um, is there anybody else that we missed that we should talk about? I, I think we pretty much touched on everybody. I do want to just point out that they managed to get William Hurt to come stand in the background of one shot so, so, so Thunderbolt Ross could be at Tony's funeral. Yeah, I think that was just because he was going to be in that Vanity Fair photo shoot. Yeah. And not, not just that, they also had, um, what's his name, Robert Redford reprising his role as... Uh, <laughs> Alexander Pierce. Name? Yes, which was uh, nice to see because he was only in there for like a few seconds, you know, like a minute yeah. of the film. It was nice to see him return and them play on the whole Hydra thing from... The uh, only other... Per- oh. Yeah, the only other person that um, I think we didn't mention that we know for sure is coming back is Maria Hill, who is going to be back with Nick Fury in Spider-Man Far From Home. But yeah, I think we pretty much covered everybody. So that is the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, obviously, there's stuff we didn't touch on. There's going to be Eternals introduced. There's going to be um, Shang-Chi is going to be kind of like, what, the the Chinese? Like, they're looking at it as almost like a Chinese Black Panther kind of uh, hit is what they're aiming for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it's that character has a very interesting background. So I'm very curious to see what they do with that. 
So I guess the last question here, I know we've gone way longer than we were planning to, but the last question is, uh, what now that we're done with the Infinity Saga, what is next? Like, Jacob, you have read a lot of the comic books. Like, what what do you think they could be heading towards next? Like, are we going to see, like, uh, Secret Invasion? Secret Invasion was my go-to immediate response to this. Because now we know the scrolls. We know the scrolls are in Captain Marvel. They were, you know, good guys. It would be very interesting to have, like, in 30 years since Captain Marvel, the scrolls have, you know turned around or at least a group of them have started infiltrating earth or started like or have started like declaring war and start replacing earth's heroes i think that if they're going to bring back the scrolls and that, that the groundwork's there reversing that having captain marvel have to come to the grips of the fact that her old allies you know maybe have shifted could be a very interesting way to take this uh, here's a quick question do you know if scrolls can take on the form of dead people uh, I think they can. Because that sure. could be a way for like Robert Downey Jr. to come back in some shocking surprise appearance for like out of nowhere that they keep out of all the marketing in one of these movies, you know, five years from now. Maybe he's just like he's not in anything for a long time. And then all of a sudden he just shows up on screen and everybody gasps and then realizes that he's a scroll. But I feel like the the amount of time for us to realize that would be so short because everybody would be like, no, this is something's up here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just an option. Another rumor I've heard going around is uh dark Avengers. Do you know anything about that? Uh, Jacob? It's, I know the basics, which is uh, in the comics. I mean, there've been various versions of this, but it's essentially a suicide squad with Avengers. Uh, I know that very similar teams have been formed by heroes trying to, you know, re- re- reform villains. Other times, I know, like, uh, Norman Osborn, Spider-Man villain, at one point, um, became the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. and used it for his own nefarious memes, building his own team of Dark Avengers who are all, you know, villains in new armor. Uh, so I could, an Avengers versus Avengers uh, like series where, like, there's a team of, you know, heroes versus villains posing as heroes could be fun. Yeah. I, th- I think that could be in the plans. Uh, do, do we have any other ideas at all? We don't. <laughs> no, I don't uh, think so. Oh, you know, one person we didn't mention here is Thanos. Is Thanos dead? I mean, he's been killed twice now. Yeah, he's gone. Because to bring Thanos back would be the, would be a bad decision. <laughs> um, the other, th- or actually, we, we didn't mention the villains. So really quick, Thanos uh, bringing him back would be a bad decision, as you say. But um, on the other hand, I, I do want to say that. I feel like that character was, uh, if I have any criticisms of this movie, they kind of turned that character from someone who had a point of view and had like some kind of uh, emotional motives into someone who just wanted to destroy the universe. And it became kind of like plain old comic book villain. Yeah, that, that's um, that's definitely something that I, I can get behind. I don't think Thanos is the most complicated villain, but I do like how he seems to have come to a clear logical solution in his own mind in Infinity War. And here, yeah, definitely does resort to, oh, I'm just going to kill everyone. Yeah, like, I don't even know what his plan was at that point. But uh, I don't know. Um, Loki uh, is the last person I wanted to talk about because we didn't get to him. We mentioned him in passing. Um, in in this movie, he the 2012 version of him gets... Uh, possession of the Tesseract, and he uses it to jump somewhere. The Tesseract uh, can jump to other places, not times. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how it's been established in the past. But 
I wouldn't put it past Loki to find a way to make it a time travel device, which would lead to a Loki Disney Plus TV series. Yeah. We know the Disney Plus TV series is coming up. It's a limited series. And we've heard the potential that he's jumping around to different times, like famous events. I'm guessing like Forrest Gump style. In some way. Yeah. Quantum leaping his way through the MCU. Yeah. So uh, don't expect to see the end of him just yet. But what, do you think we'll ever see him again in the movies? In the movies, no. Yeah. I think we're going to get with these Disney Plus series. I think we're going to get like these cool side stories. We're going to see people grow in between these movies. Like, you know, what I mentioned with Falcon and Winter Soldier. We're going to see him uh, finding acceptance into the shield. Um, but it's going to be something that if you don't see that TV series, you could go from from Endgame to whatever the next movie is with Falcon. And it would just be like, oh, time has progressed and he's, accept- you know, things are going to be mentioned that happened in that show. But it's not like it's essential for you to see it. Because I don't think like anybody like most people don't have enough time to see all of this. I mean, I will. But um, so I'm <laughs> guessing Loki's going to be one of those like branches off that will never come back to the main MCU timeline. So it's not going to be uh, complicated to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, any final thoughts? Uh, this movie rules. Yes. <laughs> it's way better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it three times now. I probably will see it again. Uh, So I hope you all enjoyed our analysis of the future of the MCU going by character by character. Uh, You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, or you can go to daily.slashfilm.com to find it there. Send... Oh, Peter, can I plug one more thing, actually? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I recorded a, a spoiler-filled discussion, uh, a video review with David Chen from the Slash Film cast, and that's published uh, on slashfilm.com right now. Maybe we can drop it in the show notes just in case, because I'm, I'm going to be leaving the country, and in case I, I'm not able to podcast with you guys over the next few days, um, I just wanted people to be able to check that out if you're interested in more uh, in-game discussion. Yes. Okay, send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday.